From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. The customer, they're the hero. You're the trusted advisor that helps them solve their problem. And when you think about things in that context, your messaging is very different. And it's much more in the language of the customer and really speaking directly to what matters to them. Hi, everyone. Justin Schreiber here. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Hintz, who's the CMO of Barracuda, and has held prominent marketing positions at companies such as Symantec, Citrix, and Urban Airship. Ask any sales leader that works with Erin to describe her, and they'll all use the same word, partner. During our conversation, we'll talk about how Erin builds bridges between sales and marketing, and we'll dive into the belly of the marketing beast, discussing topics such as revenue attribution and B2C versus B2B demand gen. We'll also spend some time on one of Aaron's favorite topics, how to bring out the best in members of the team who are introverts. As a self-avowed introvert herself, Aaron has had to learn firsthand how to thrive in an extrovert's world, but more importantly, how to reshape it so that it works for both extroverts and introverts. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Justin, it's great to be here. Now, Aaron, we're going to do something a little unorthodox today. I thought that we could start off, and if you would, you can share with us your favorite life hack. Probably my favorite is the notion of don't ask, don't get. And this was advice given to me by a good friend in sales, not surprisingly. (laughs) (laughs) And um, the whole idea is if people don't know, something that you want or that you're striving for or aiming for, um, if you don't ask, you're much less likely to get it. And so it comes into play in a lot of different parts of life, I believe. Um, It can be anything from just asking when you're traveling for an upgrade or, you know, when you're at a hotel, you stay at a hotel, ask them to take something off your bill. Um, But it's this idea and, and, coupled with don't ask, don't get is the idea of 10 no's. So challenge yourself in a month to get 10 no's by asking for things that you wouldn't normally think to ask for. And what's fascinating about it is how many times you're told yes. And and I think it's a life hack in the sense that you learn and become more accustomed to the idea of rejection and, and hearing no, and it's fine. And you just get used to that. And so you're much more likely then to to ask for more and to push. This is a great idea. It's equivalent to the notion that you miss every shot that you don't take. So I have to ask, clearly you're a practitioner of the don't ask, don't get philosophy. What is the best thing that you've gotten because you asked first? Well, I am a big, big tennis fan. And I love professional tennis. I've been to three of the four Grand Slams around the world. I still have to hit Wimbledon. So that's on my list, but I've, I've been to all the others. And my family, we go to the US Open in New York. When I was working at Urban Airship, our CFO was on the board of the USTA for 
part of the country. And so he had an in and we would talk tennis all the time. And at one point I said to him, Hey Mike, you know, you must get some really great seats. <laughs> do you ever have extra tickets? I know you don't stay the entire time. What do you do with your extra, extra seats? And, and he was really great about it. He said, well, I'm going to offer them to our CEO first. I'm like, Hey, that's totally fair. <laughs> he said, but if he can't take them, I'll, I'll see what I can, what I can hand over to you. And what ended up happening is he had passes or tickets to the president's club, which is, where Oprah sits, basically. And, and so you'll see a lot of um, you know, tennis stars will be there or, or retired tennis stars, you'll see celebrities. I mean, this is the kind of the who's who of the, of, of the attendees at the US Open. And so he was able to get those tickets for my husband and I, and we were able to have that experience and to, to sit in the end zone, have amazing seats. I didn't see Oprah. While I was there, sadly, but I did see Ben Stiller. So, and I got to watch Roger Federer play up close. And so it was an amazing experience. All right. I'm totally sold. Aaron, I need to ask you do you have any tickets by chance to the US Open that you might be able to, to flip my way? See, I'm, <laughs> I'm already putting this into practice. And I'm going to, before the day is over, I'm going to get 10 no's logged up. I'm going to start to keep track of that now. All right. So I'm imagining Aaron as a, a little girl, this assertive creature that just walks around and asks for everything that's on her mind and is in the middle of the fray at all times. Clearly, that's how, how you must have been given the fact that this is your favorite life hack. Did it, do I have that description right? Oh, yes. I was the person that made it all happen. Um, in <laughs> fact, in fact, that couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> I, I was a very, very shy um, introverted child. It took a lot for me to speak with anyone that I didn't already know. So it was uh, definitely a challenge and and very much something that my parents wanted to help me with. Well, we've actually talked a little bit in the past and you're a self-avowed introvert, which I love because half of the population are introverts. And yet we live in a world, especially in business, where the extrovert is always the archetypal person that's put forward. So actually, a little bit later on in the, the podcast, we'll talk about your tips for creating a culture where introverts can really thrive. I want to get back, though, to your childhood. What was it that allowed you to overcome this extreme shyness that you were experiencing and develop the confidence that you needed to get out there and, and interact with the world? I really credit my mother for this. And she would, she would challenge me in a lot of ways throughout my life. Um, but what happened as a child was she encouraged me to get into public speaking. And it took a lot more than just encouragement, right? She, she had to work with me and, and convince me as to why it made a lot of sense. And I, I took her up on it and we worked together. Uh, she helped me a lot in my endeavors with public speaking, but I, I took it on. And from the age of nine to about age 15, it was a thing that I participated in quite a bit. And I competed, um, whether it was within my school or later on, I, I competed externally in public speaking competitions. It was a great experience. It also really tapped into my competitive spirit because introverts can be competitive too. <laughs> they just might not talk about it as much. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, it was really 
um, a good thing for me to do. And it evolved over time. The thing about it that I think worked so well for me was that part of the challenge in being shy is being afraid of not saying the right thing or not having your thoughts collected quickly enough to be able to participate in a conversation. And with the public speaking, you could memorize your speech. So it was something that you would prepare, read ahead of time, memorize, and then practice. And so when you're up on stage or in front of a group, you don't have to be thinking about what to say because you already have it memorized. And and so I think that that aspect of it really enabled me to gain confidence and, and be able to do my best at it. What's interesting is that oftentimes public speaking starts with exactly that. You've got a presentation or a, a speech that you give. I know, though, that that can evolve into competitions where there's actually spontaneous uh, presentations that are given. You, you're given a topic. You've got a few minutes to pull your thoughts together, and then you've got to stand up and deliver on that front. Were you ever involved in that kind of an environment? I was. The dreaded impromptu speech. <laughs> So fortunately, this came later, later on after I'd been doing a fair amount of public speaking. And I had, I had won some competitions for the school, you know, as a nine year old beating out the 10 and 11 year olds and as a 12 year old beating out the 13 year olds to to win. And with that comes confidence. But then as I was doing more of these external competitions, they would have the prepared speech element, and then they would have the impromptu element where literally you would pick a topic out of a hat. You'd have 20 minutes to collect your thoughts behind the scenes, and then you'd have to come out and present. And I remember doing this in front of a group of 400 people, 400 strangers, plus my mother in the audience. My dad might have been there too, and my brother, but uh, you know, just being terrified of, oh my gosh, how am I ever going to do this? And so in fact, you can practice um, and prepare yourself for this, which I did. And, and so I felt a little better about it, but I don't even remember what the topic was for this particular speech, but I went back, collected my thoughts, made some points, and then I was able to give a, a two to three minute talk on it. And, and it went very well. So you had the foundation in place, you built up the confidence, you took the next step. I think there's a great lesson there for all of us in terms of just taking one step at a time and building on the the solid foundation that you've established in the past. Mm-hmm. I have to ask, what was your best speech that you delivered as a child? Probably the one that was the most fun was a speech about my brother. There were two that were most memorable for me. One was one about my brother and another one was about embarrassing situations. And the reason I enjoyed both of those was because I got a great reaction from the audience. I was able to get a laugh for both of them. <laughs> my brother was was quite a, a character. And, and so I had some really good stories about him. And um, with the embarrassing situations, just telling life stories that people could relate to where they had been through a really embarrassing moment. Yeah. So I think that, that the fact that people could relate to those, and for me, it was the reaction that I was able to get from the audience. Perfect. Well, clearly that has served you well as you've gone on to become a, a very successful marketer. Wanted to transition now and talk a little bit about that. One of your earlier executive roles in marketing was at Symantec. What intrigues me about the role that you played there is that you at times were overseeing 
a B2C business from a marketing perspective. And then at other times, we're overseeing a B2B business. And I'd love just to get your perspective as a marketer who's played on both sides of the aisle. What are the, what are the lessons that you learned from one style of marketing that you brought across? And where do we need to be careful about not trying to make false connections? Well, first of all, there are some things that are similar about both and things that are different when you're marketing to consumers versus a business audience. So one thing that's consistent with both is knowing the customer and understanding what matters to them and how you can help them, how your product or service solves their problem. And and that seems kind of obvious because it's marketing 101. But if you look at the messaging and the marketing that's out there, a lot of it especially in B2B, um, I think it's surprising how much is just about that product and not addressing the problem that you're solving or how you're helping that customer. And so something that's similar between B2B and B2C is that notion of really understanding the customer, what matters to them, and then speaking to them in that context versus just the speeds and feeds of, of what you have to offer. And then the thing that is most different about the two of them is maybe there isn't as much to to carry across is with B2C, the marketing is doing the selling. And so you might have a partner or um, some kind of fulfillment uh, step um, between the marketer and the consumer, but it's really, you don't have a sales team that's selling to the consumer. Whereas in B2B, it's very much that team effort where sales and marketing are working really closely together to enable you to service the customer and get them what they need. And of late with the marketing technologies that are in play and also the self-serve resources that are available, it feels like more and more, even in a B2B environment of the sales motion is being executed before anyone even talks to a salesperson. So that, that idea of going in with a mindset where it's a B2C style approach to marketing, helping the customer understand what the value is, is tremendously valuable as, as things start to evolve. Yes, absolutely. And that's something at Barracuda, our inbound marketing is a really important part of our overall business where marketing actually sources about 30% of the business. So we play a role in the business sourced by our partners. We play a role in helping the sales team with prospecting, but there's a lot that that marketing does to bring in the customer and and bring in the interest, which then we partner with the sales team to, uh, to make the sale. With digital and all of the new technologies and capabilities and targeting that we can do today in marketing, there is so much more that we can do before a person or a prospect ever speaks with a salesperson. That notion that you need to build a partnership between marketing and sales is an idea that I want to spend a little bit more time on because I know that that's become a hallmark of your career as well. Urban Airship was your first time spent as a CMO. And I know that that relationship that you were able to build with the sales team was mission critical to the growth that you enjoyed. Can you talk a little bit about the situation as you arrived and the approach that you took to build that relationship with sales? I did have a bit of a head start on that one where I had worked with the sales leader at Urban Airship um, at my previous company when I was at Citrix. And so we had gotten to know each other and and worked together there as one go-to-market team. And then when I joined Urban Airship, that partnership had already been established to a certain extent. But then, of course, 
course, it's always a matter of maintaining that as you have the different pressures of, of making the number. There are a few keys, I think, to having that strong relationship. First of all, understanding that you need each other, <laughs> especially in B2B marketing, like salespeople can survive on their own to a certain extent. But marketing, if you don't have salespeople closing the deals, what outcome do you have to show for yourself? So there's a real dependency, I think, on, on the sales organization for that aspect. And then, of course, sales depends on marketing for the overall the branding, the air cover, as well as the demand generation, and and then the ongoing communication with customers once they're customers. So definitely had a head start at Urban Airship and and just really spent time on that relationship, made sure that the, the connections were happening in the right places across the team as well. So that, I mean, it doesn't work if just the leaders are talking. You've got to make all of those connection points throughout the organization and make sure that that there's a lot of collaboration as well, because it's really, it's really easy to get isolated and, and um, entrapped in your own ideas and what you should be doing, but you've got to keep that reality or, or stay in touch with reality in terms of seeing through a marketing program all the way to the sale and making sure that you're being relevant for, for customers and prospects. And, and the sales team can provide a lot of that feedback. And as you interact with sales, particularly sales leadership, what is the kind of data that you're sharing with them to convey the efforts that, that marketing is executing on, but also to make sure that everybody's on the same page? First, I think it's really important to speak in their language because so leads matter and, and, and leads are important at the, at the top of the funnel. Um, but real, what really matters to salespeople are opportunities, you know, real sales opportunities. So if you're driving a bunch of leads and they're not well qualified or they're not converting to opportunities, it's kind of like, who cares? So that's really critical is speaking the language of the sales team and also caring about the metrics that they care about. Because we're just talking about ad impressions and, you know, MQLs, leads. It, it's just not that compelling, but if we can show and demonstrate the leads that are converting into opportunities and pipeline and ultimately sales, that's where it becomes much more relevant and you can have a more meaningful conversation. All right. So that naturally leads into the million dollar question. And if you have an answer to this question, you will win the gold ticket. Attribution. I know this is something that many, many marketers struggle with. The Holy Grail, obviously, would be able to develop an attribution engine, which links that first touch all the way through to a closed contract. Easier said than done. How have you tackled that issue in your career? It is a constant work in progress, <laughs> for sure. And I, I think if anyone had had that Holy Grail answer, um, they probably wouldn't have to work anymore. But really what it comes down to is continually working on it and, and getting closer uh, to, to the answers. So we're fortunate at Barracuda where we have a pretty big digital business. We also serve customers of all sizes from small to medium and even into larger enterprises. And so we're, we're kind of covering, covering a full range when you look at what we do from a marketing perspective. We are able to track a lot because of the digital footprint that we have, and, and that is meaningful, and that builds credibility 
and it also builds that relationship with the sales team. And, and so there's a strong dependency there, which is, which is really helpful just for us as we're working together. But I would say we're, we're always in pursuit of that, that complete answer. And, and, you know, the other part of it too is we can track fairly well what's sourced by marketing, what comes inbound to, to our website, and then people fill out a form or they do a live chat or they, they connect with us in another way. And we can tie that information together to know where they came from and how they came to us. But then it has to get through our whole sales process. And that doesn't always remain consistent where you've got the data from the original source. So there's, there's a lot of special identification that we build in into our analytics so that we can track back and double check on things to, to make sure that we're getting pretty accurate information. But yeah, it's a constant work in progress for sure. One of the things that I'm intrigued by is a movement that is on the rise where companies are starting to employ revenue operations teams as opposed to sales operations teams or marketing operations teams. What I find intriguing about that is it's it's a holistic approach to your go-to-market where one team is looking across the full funnel, as I said, from first touch all the way through to the close. And you avoid some of the pitfalls that happen when you've got two separate operations team. Collectively, now they're able to put systems in place to track the scenario. But in addition to that, when there are snags or problems, it's not, hey, that's your problem or that's your problem. It's we've got a problem here. How are we going to work through it together? And I, I'm interested to see how that grows over time. I think to a large extent right now, you see that in tech companies, SaaS companies, uh, just by nature of the business that they do. My suspicion is though that that will start to spread to a broader set of, of companies in the future. It makes a lot of sense when you when you think about it, because that's what matters. If you're the CEO and you're looking at your go-to-market, you don't really care who does what or where things fall. You just care about the overall outcome and and how you got there so that you can repeat it. That's right. <laughs> so that I, I mean that makes that makes a lot of sense to bring those together. The one thing I would say about that is if that person or that group truly has that that full responsibility, that's the key part. Because what happens quite often is the sales needs get put ahead of the marketing needs. And so you never want to get in that kind of position where you're not able to get the information or the analytics that you need to, to deliver the best quality marketing. But if, if someone does have that full set of responsibility, it makes a lot of sense. I think that is why companies in the past have bifurcated the two functions. My experience is that really it starts with the relationship that the CMO and the CRO have uh, mm -hmm. or the chief sales officer. If there's a strong relationship or relationship of trust and a mutual commitment to understanding one another's business, you tend to see a much more equitable distribution of resources. On the other hand, if you've got a dominant player, that could be the CMO or the CRO, and, and one that isn't as dominant, you see all resources getting sucked to one side or the other. And, mm -hmm. and I think you can tell a lot about the health of an organization in general based on the relationship between those two individuals. Yes, that is very true. And when they are in separate groups, I believe that's why it's so important to speak the language of the sales team. And 
also show metrics and deliverables that that matter to them where they can see, okay, if I don't hire salespeople in these areas and instead give the money to you to drive more demand digitally, is that going to be the best outcome? And, and will that be the right decision? And, and that's that constant balance of do we have enough demand and then do we have enough salespeople to close that demand? And, and really getting as close as you can to that perfect balance is, is key. Well, you had a great run at some really strong companies from Symantec, Citrix. You then became the CMO at Urban Airship. And then your second go-round at CMO was at Barracuda. At that point, I would imagine you had a playbook that you had developed that you would bring to the table when you came into a new situation. Can you break down for us what that playbook looks like? What are the things that you do when you come into a new company to assess the strength of the marketing organization and to get it on the right track? I guess I do have a playbook. I think in my last several roles, I've come into a company where they've had someone previously in the position. And so for whatever reason, at Citrix, the person who had been in the role was promoted to another area, vacating it. And at Urban Airship and Barracuda, Um, the leader was moving on to other things. And so it's very different when you're coming in, there's an established team, there's been an established leader. At Barracuda, in fact, one of the founders of Barracuda was the CMO, and he'd been in that role for 10 plus years. So things were very established in a certain way. So a big part of my playbook in each of these, and particularly at Barracuda, was to not come in like a bull in a china shop and throw everything up in the air, but rather spend some time early on really getting to know the people on the marketing team, but also the key people within the organization that work with the marketing team to understand, okay, what are we doing well? Where are some gaps? You know, getting those different perspectives and then, of course, having my own assessment as well. And the things that that I've done pretty consistently in each of these roles is first really focus on the team and making sure that we have the right team in place. And what are the the fundamentals that we need? Do we have a good plan? Do we have measurement? Do we have, you know, what's missing and what are the things that we need to plan to, um, to fill in? And, you know, each time there are varying amounts of flexibility that you have too, right? You don't normally come into a new role and get a blank check and, and, and say, um, yeah, you can hire all the people that you want. <laughs> what happens is you have a team, you need to assess that team, figure out is everyone in the right role? Does this make sense? And then augment with some outside talent. And so, so the people part is, is really important. And then it's looking at the fundamentals of, of the marketing, how, Does marketing work with sales? Are there things that we need to change up there? In most cases, there are. There's always room for improvement 
in the relationship with sales. So there'll be varying degrees of what needs to be done there. And then um, also the relationship with the product teams, because marketing plays a critical role in partnership with the product teams, not only to from a thought leadership and, and innovation perspective, but also from the product marketing aspect. And so I think people process and um, understanding the rest of the organization and changes that need to happen there. One of the things that I find challenging as a marketer that's new to an organization, to really build a strong marketing engine, there are a lot of components to it. There's tech, there's process. To instrument that, it takes time. No one understands that outside of the marketing team. No one values that outside of the marketing team. And so if you were to come in and say, hey, I need six months just to get everything set up, you'd get thrown out before you said your next sentence. But at the same time, to set yourself up for long-term success, that's the hard work that you need to do. My experience is that if you can identify one project, which is high visibility, important to the company, work on that and deliver something around that in the first couple of months that you're on the job, it buys you a tremendous amount of credibility and then gives you the license to do the heavy lifting, maybe the things that are going to take longer in parallel to that. Yes, I, I think that that's a really great point. And, you know, kind of going back to my Barracuda experience, the first thing was looking at the team and, and, and very quickly getting the right team in place, which you can do some of that really quickly and some of it takes a little bit longer. And then the one project in, in the case of, actually, this was both Urban Airship and at Barracuda, was a brand refresh. And what is the, what is the messaging? What is the overall story for, for the company and for the brand? And that's something that's different in a CMO role versus a, a VP or a head of marketing, where in the marketing role, you're responsible for the product line, but as the CMO, you're responsible for the company as well. And so we embarked on a brand refresh project at Barracuda, which was an amazing experience, partially because the Barracuda brand was already very strong and very well known. And so it's a matter of defining, okay, how do we want to evolve the brand over time? So I would say that 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 was the one project that really enabled us to, to take our marketing to a different place. And then the other piece of it at Barracuda was we already had a pretty well-established inbound marketing process and the whole digital, the digital elements of the marketing mix in, in terms of driving demand. And um, the thing that was missing there, though, was creating more visibility across the organization. It was viewed as a black box. And so creating creating more visibility and transparency in terms of how the dollars were being spent, what we were doing there, and, and what it was delivering for the business. That was another key project. Things like brand messaging, their high visibility, and so people will immediately see the changes that are happening. They can understand them. They can almost touch them. And, and so you're right. Those are the kinds of, of high-impact projects that you can take on. When I've joined companies, I've also started with the messaging for a couple of reasons. First of all, I find that the messaging is the core to all that we do as a marketer. What, what is the essence of our story? Because once you figure that out, it's going to impact your website, your demand gen effort, the way that the salespeople are positioning and selling the product. And when you come up with a great story that really resonates 
people get excited about it. And then the second thing that I like to focus on is don't just come up with a story, but teach everyone in the company how to tell that story. I've got a, um, I actually learned this from a, a boss many years ago, a tactic that I call the napkin pitch, which is you haven't nailed the story until you can draw it on the back of a napkin. You're at, at lunch with someone and they want to know what you do when you pull out a napkin. It's a very powerful tool though, because if you can get it on a napkin, you can teach developers how to tell it. You can teach sales how to tell it. And all of a sudden, you've got everybody in the company that's got this napkin pitch where they're drawing things out. They get excited about that. And that's the kind of thing that's going to give you license then to go off and take on some bigger projects. Yes, absolutely. So I wanted to also talk a little bit more about messaging because I know that's a topic that you've thought a lot about storytelling and what the hallmarks of a good story are in the context of B2B. How do you think about that? One thing that we've employed and, and we're still working on at Barracuda is um, taking the, the idea of story brand. So there's a book by Donald Miller called Story Brand, and it's very much about clarifying your message so that customers will listen. And, and that really, it resonates. It certainly resonates with me and also with my leadership team. And what we've been doing over the past, I guess since January this year, training up the rest of the marketing team to think that way. And, and the essence of it is it's a seven step process to telling your story. The a key element of it is that the customer or the target, the, the person or buyers that you're trying to reach, they're the hero. And you're offering your products, what you what you have is um, you're the trusted advisor that helps them solve their problem. And when you think about things in that context, your messaging is very different. And it's much more in, in the language of the customer and really speaking directly to what matters to them versus more of a speeds and feeds, here are all the great things that, that my product does, which people only care about in the context of the problem it solves for them. I love that framework. I've actually simplified it a little bit. I have a little workshop I do with my team. It's, it's what Star Wars can teach us about telling great stories. Lucas, I think Boyle, in, in the first Star Wars episode, we won't comment on the later episodes, but at least in the first, I think he had all the great elements. And he's actually admitted that Akira Kurosawa was a, was a, uh, the great film director was a had a large influence on him. But I always talk about who's your Luke Skywalker? And there's only one right answer to that. The hero is the customer. Yeah. What is your equivalent of the force? That's your secret weapon. And you always need to have a secret weapon. What's the Death Star? That is the big thing that you're trying to overcome. And then what's that moment when the Death Star blows up? That's when good triumphs over evil. Um, the good guys win. Every story, though, can have those four elements to it, whether it's a massive sales pitch or a 30-second clip that you're posting on LinkedIn. And it's interesting, if everybody has that framework in their brain, you can, you can come back to that and use, use those elements as a reminder to make sure that you've checked all the boxes of the good story. I like that. Well, I did want to come back then to this question about creating a culture where introverts can thrive. 
I know that you've thought a lot about that. And actually, um, I heard you say once that of all of the attributes that we celebrate in business, aggressiveness might be the most overrated. Why, why is that your feeling? Aggressiveness can be overrated if it doesn't have purpose. And it's just aggressiveness for aggressiveness sake. And it's amazing how, how much people can get by on that. <laughs> Even just using the words, oh, let's be aggressive. We need to be more aggressive, you know, against our competitors or whatever the case may be. And I don't think you can argue with that. You know, we want to be aggressively going after something or getting the win or, you know, in, in the way that we compete. But if there isn't a little more substance to it, then it's just a lot of extroverts in a room talking to each other. <laughs> so, so it's this idea that directed aggressiveness and the assumption that the direction is with, with, with purpose and that the purpose yeah. is correct. That's, that's what you need. But aggressiveness in and of itself isn't going to win you any points, at least in the long term. Right. And I mean, aggressiveness, it's, it's competing, right? And, and most people want to win, some people more than others. And, and I think that's a good drive to have. And so if you channel your aggressiveness with purpose, again, and, and with an idea behind it, then it's going to be more productive. You pointed out earlier on that you had a competitive side, and, and I noticed you made an, an explicit point to say I'm competitive. Are introverts sometimes labeled as not competitive? Quite possibly. That can be the part of not being seen as aggressive because you're not aggressively present all the time through talking. However, I know a lot of introverts who are very competitive, and, and I certainly have mm -hmm. a reputation for that around friends and family, I'm the one that people want to be when we're playing a game or when we're doing something. It's just, for whatever reason, that much more satisfying. I, I think it's because they know how much I hate losing. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. So what are your tips for creating a culture where whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you can bring your whole self to the situation and feel like you can thrive? Part of it is in the way, the way we operate within a group. So what I try to do with my team or whenever I'm working within a group or I'm leading something, I try to make sure that everyone has a voice. And sometimes that's uncomfortable for introverts because you have to call them out and you have to ask them what they're thinking or what their ideas are. But they always have an answer because they're, they're sitting there thinking about it. They're just not sharing it with other people. And, and so being aware of that and, and being comfortable as, as the leader of the group and calling people out and, and, and doing it in a way that's safe for people so that they can share and, and not feel intimidated or uncomfortable, more uncomfortable than, than they inevitably will. But um, I think that's one part of it. Another part is challenging people and where people might not put up their hand to take something on, maybe asking them. Sometimes with introverts, it's it's not having a group conversation about it, but it's taking them aside and having a one-on-one -on -one conversation because you know they're going to be more comfortable in that environment. So I, I think it's a lot of different things that you do um, in managing a situation or a project in order to bring everybody's contribution in. There's a great book. I'm sure you've read it, Quiet, the Power of Introverts in a World that Can't Stop Talking by Susan Cain. 
she has, she offers a lot of, of similar suggestions. And I think that as leaders, it's incumbent upon all of us to acknowledge the fact that not everybody is wired the same. And if your orientation is towards the extrovert, you're losing out on the brain power of half of the people on your team, half of the people in the room. And that's just bad leadership. And so it, it's, it's not an issue of how the people on our team show up and behave. It's an issue of how we as leaders lead. Yeah, absolutely. And just kind of, you made me think about things from an extrovert point of view. And sometimes because they, they think while they're talking, they can capture a lot of the space in a room. And so being artful about how to, I guess, interrupt people and kind of cut them off gently to give other people the floor as well. So that's, that's a big part of it too, that overall balance, not only pulling the, the introverts forward, but also asking the extroverts to give other people more airtime in a way that doesn't make them feel bad too. Because there are a lot of dynamics going on. It's a great point. We're all, hopefully, we're all thinking, some of us just choose to articulate our thoughts and others keep our thoughts to ourselves. Yeah. Uh, in either case, though, it's the process that we're following to get to that final idea or, or recommendation. Well, yeah. I love the, the Hawking quote, quiet people have the loudest minds. A lot of wisdom in that. Yeah. So uh, mm -hmm. certainly, certainly something to think about. Aaron, the time has flown by. I wanted to thank you for your insights, both in bringing out the best in everyone on your team and also related to marketing and the great experiences that you've had on that front. Well, thank you, Justin. It's been great. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.